0: the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 39, Kingdom to Empire, Empire to Dust. First, as always, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters, the Go, a very old friend of mine, great guy, uh, another supporter who wishes to remain anonymous, big thanks to them, Kate Proikova and Edward Jackman. Thanks to them, we've now reached our last milestone goal on Patreon. So I'm now officially beginning to sort of look around for people to help build a Bulgarian language version of the podcast, in addition to also help out, uh, you know, paid help to help really improve the website. So I'm kind of trying to throw myself into all of that now. And now that may not be a big deal to most of you who probably don't speak Bulgarian, but it's really exciting for me because it will allow me to promote this content to more of a Bulgarian audience and in particular Bulgarian schools. And that can let me give kind of thousands of kids a really different perspective on Bulgarian history because I hear from a lot of Bulgarians who learn history in school that these podcasts really give them a much more kind of detailed and rich Uh, view of their own history, and they tend to really appreciate it. So thank you so much for supporting us, and uh, this is going to, you know, your support's really going to help this uh, podcast get out to a lot more people, so thanks so much. All right, last time we left off with the ascension of Ivana Sen II to the throne and what could be called sort of a popular uprising that overthrew Boril in 1218. The population of Thornival opened the city to him and threw out Borel, who was blinded thrown into a dungeon to face an unknown fate. Without his allies in Hungary and the Latin Empire, Boril really just didn't stand a chance against Ivan Asen. To quote myself the last time, essentially what happened is, quote, the king of Hungary is on crusade, the Latin Empire is headless, and a fiery 20-year-old has just taken the throne of the second Bulgarian Empire. End quote. So yeah, I thought that little bit from the last episode pretty well summed up what is the situation right now so that leaves us to the question we left off with last time what happens now what kind of ruler will ivan asen ii be because you remember we talked before with uh, with Borl, you know he was a really good example of just how important who the ruler was really became to how things went well the first major event in ivan asen's reign was the return of king andrew ii of hungary from the fifth crusade now Things had gone pretty smoothly with the Fifth Crusade successfully getting to the Holy Land on Venetian ships and being united under Andrew's command. They won a serious victory in the River Jordan, but Andrew got sick and decided to return home a year into the crusade. Once he left, a German force arrived and the crusade kind of allied with the Seljuk Turks and tried to have them attack Syria while the crusaders attacked Egypt. But, They couldn't take the first port city they laid siege to, and disease slowly began to take its toll. They did eventually take this port about a year on, but it took a while. And at that point, the crusade really stalled, and this allowed the Syrians to defeat the Seljuk Turks. And, well, that's not the end of the crusade, but we'll kind of leave it at that. So, you know, Andrew, under him it was going pretty well, he got sick, went home, things didn't go great after that. But now back to the Balkans. So, Andrew has a few stops on his way back to Hungary as he's taking a land route. Now, this eventually brings him to Bulgaria. He has to pass through. And in Bulgaria, he is detained until he promises to allow the marriage of his daughter Maria to Ivan Asen II. Now, a quick note. Yvanasen II already had two children and a wife well, with a woman named Anna. Historians argue whether or not she was his wife or maybe just a concubine, but apparently his relationship with her was kind of designed to bring support from the Rus uh, while he was taking his throne. So you remember he was exiled to the land of the Rus while, yeah, while Boreal was running things, and so he kind of needed their support if he was going to come back. So this maybe wife, maybe concubine, she's out of the picture. He, and this is really ridiculous, he, he literally abducts the man he wants to be his father-in-law, which is, we can all agree, super weird, but, you know, it's the Middle Ages, people did lots of weird things. So, in any case, Ivan Sen is now on the throne, he's ready to ditch this former wife concubine or something for a more advantageous marriage to a Hungarian princess, so... There, The old relationship ends and Andrew agrees to let his daughter marry Ivana Sen and the two are married three years later in 1221. Now lucky for Ivana Sen, he also managed to get those disputed territories along the Danube included in her dowry. So the marriage not only brought a nice alliance with the Hungarians, it gets Bulgaria back some land that it used to have and without a fight. But Ivana focus on building a quick set of alliances to replace those Bordel had kind of used before his demise didn't end there, because very quickly at this time, he also set up a marriage between his daughter and the brother of the ruler of Epirus. Remember the Despotate of Epirus. You can check the maps from the last time, the episode last time to see where that is. So Ivana said he's getting to the throne and he's quickly trying to set up a bunch of kind of whirlwind marriage alliances. He's shoring up his position. But this uh, marriage between his daughter and the brother of uh, the ruler of Epirus is an interesting move. Because as you'll recall, Epirus had recently absorbed the former lands of Stretz after his demise. Rather, So that meant Epirus was at this point in control of extensive lands in Macedonia. Lands with which Bulgaria no doubt would have liked to control, as those were once core Bulgarian territories, including places like Ohrid. But it seems clear that at this point, Ivanasen couldn't be too picky when it came to gathering allies. He was fresh on the throne, and he was attempting to kind of bring Bulgaria back from that relative weakness of the reign of Boril. So I guess he decides he needs to be friends with Epirus to make that happen. So in quick succession, two states, two states which would have seemed apt candidates for being the enemies of Ivanaeus II, became his allies. So, taking advantage of peace with Bulgaria, Epirus then continued to expand during this period. It gradually conquered all of Thessaly, except for Thessalonica itself. That city, being so recently at the heart of a very strong kingdom ruled by Boniface, Remember, Boniface was the guy who might have been the Latin emperor, but ended up not being, and instead founded a sort of Latin allied state in Thessalonica. So the kingdom of Thessalonica very recently was doing pretty well. Boniface was a strong leader, but this sort of alliance between Bulgaria and Epirus allows Epirus to really throw all of its might at the kingdom of Thessalonica and gradually take all of its territory except for its capital. Now, there was hope that the Latin Empire might come to the aid of its ally before Epirus could completely destroy it. But unfortunately for Epirus, the Latins were busy fighting the Nicaeans in Asia Minor. See, when the leader of Nicaea died, you can again look back on the map from last time to see where Nicaea was, but, you know, right on the uh, Asian side of Istanbul. So when the leader of Nicaea died, his son-in-law rose up to take the throne. However, the brother of the recently departed emperor, uh, the uncle of this son in law, the uncle in law, if you want to say, he disputed the son in law taking control, and he sought help from the Latin Empire to place him on the throne. This led to the Battle of, let's see if I can pronounce this right, Poimanenon in 1224, where armies representing the Latin Empire and Nicaea met near a lake south of the Sea of Marmara in Anatolia. At that battle, the son in law, John III, Ducas Vatatsis, won a decisive victory. And the brother of the former emperor, the brother of the former emperor, yeah, they were captured and blinded. All that went away. So, what this meant now was that the path for Nicaea to conquer more Latin possessions in Anatolia was clear, was secure, because, you know, he had not just defeated this kind of claim to the throne, he defeated a Latin army, the Latin army in Asia. And so, Not only was the Latin Empire too distracted to help Epirus to, oh, sorry, to help the Kingdom of Thessalonica fight off Epirus, it had now lost Nicaea and was dangerously vulnerable in Asia. So yeah, things are not looking good for the Catholics of the Balkans at this point. Now, around all the same time, Epirus finally manages to conquer Thessalonica, which officially marks the end of the Kingdom of Thessalonica. So. We can say say goodbye to it. It was good while it lasted. We are now one uh, of these kind of successor states of the Byzantine Empire down. So, yeah, the first of these new states is dead. And what all this means is it's very bad news to the Latin Empire uh, under its current emperor, Robert I. Because... Now, Nicaea and Epirus, the two successor states of the Byzantine Empire, are simultaneously doing really well and taking lots of territory on either side of Constantinople. So, this is a huge problem, right? The Latin Empire is now very threatened. Also, as a quick point, at this point, historians now begin to refer to um, the despotate of Epirus that I've been talking about for the last couple episodes instead as the Empire of Thessalonica, So the kingdom of Thessalonica is dead, long live the empire of Thessalonica. So just as a linguistic point or a naming point from now on. So at the same time of all this, Bulgaria under Ivanus II is sort of consolidating itself. It's, you know, making these allies uh, while the territory of the Latin empire is shrinking very fast. So unsurprisingly, Robert tries to sue for peace with the Nicians about a year after his defeat at that battle the 1225 treaty, saw the Latins give up all of their Anatolian possessions up to Nicomedia. And so basically, all they have left in Asia, the Latins, is just that little peninsula that sticks out to meet Constantinople. Again, there'll be a map for this episode on bghistorypodcast.com, so you can check that out. So, you know, at least the Latins are at peace, at least Constantinople hasn't fallen, but it's not looking good for them. So, this also, this treaty also had Robert, the current emperor in Constantinople, promise to marry a daughter of the now new kind of emperor of Nicaea. Though he later kind of broke off that engagement, it probably would have been super awkward anyways. Instead, the emperor in Constantinople marries a woman who had previously been engaged to a Burgundian man, the man from Burgundy in France. And as a result, this Burgundian organized kind of a coup which drove Robert from Constantinople. Emperor Robert fled to Rome to seek the help of the Pope in getting back to the city, and as well as kind of hoping that there'd be a sort of quasi-crusader army to maybe help save the Latin Empire from Epirus and Nicaea. The Pope told him to get back to Constantinople and wouldn't kind of agree to give him any direct military aid. And on the journey back, Robert died in 1228. So, bummer. That sucks. So, once again... You can imagine, this is a dire, dire situation for the Latin Empire. The West had said, no, we're not sending you any help. The emperor is dead. Enemies are on all sides. I mean, the Niceans and the, the new emperor of Thessalonica. Bulgaria, not quite clear at this point. Are they super friendly? Are they hostile? But definitely not uh, you know, an outright friend, at least as far as we know, in this year. So yeah, the Latin Empire is panicking. Uh, all they really also, to a point, all they really control at this point is kind of land around Constantinople. It's just the city and, you know, a couple dozen kilometers around it uh, of territory. That's all they've got. Because the King Empire of Thessalonica had recently taken Adrianople, which you remember, a very important city. So, to make matters worse, at the death of Robert, the throne now passed to a man named Baldwin II, who was the nephew of those first two Latin emperors at the time of Robert's death. The issue here is that you know when Robert dies, Baldwin II is 11 years old, so really, it just keeps getting worse for the Latin Empire, right? Okay, they've got a new emperor, but he's 11. Nobody, nobody needs an 11-year-old emperor at the point when their city is surrounded by enemies. It just its not a good time. So, while Ivana Sen himself was considered as a potential regent for the young boy. I mean, he was going to need a regency. Uh, So this is interesting. This tells us that, okay, maybe there were pretty friendly relations between um, Bulgaria and the Latin empire at this time. So they're thinking, all right, maybe the Bulgarian uh, uh, emperor himself, the tsar, maybe he can be a regent. So, you know this would also seem weird, though. So like, we see Bulgaria's on good terms, even though the Empire of Thessalonica it has a sort of marriage alliance with Bulgaria. So Bulgaria, again, I mentioned before the the connection with the Kingdom of the, or the Empire of Thessalonica slash despotate of Epirus. And this is a weird alliance because at the same time we had the marriage alliance with the Hungarians, who were you know Catholics, super close allies of the Pope. So what we see, even from the beginning, is that Ivana Sen is sort of playing both sides, right? He's not taking a firm stance with the former Byzantine states, the Greeks, the Orthodox people, but he's not taking a firm stance with the Catholics, the Latins, the West. He's friends with both, he's seeing where things are going to happen. He clearly would like to be a regent for this new emperor, but, you know, we'll see what happens. So, well, ultimately it doesn't happen. So, Instead of Ivan Asen being the regent, the king of Jerusalem, John of Brienne, he is chosen as a regent. Now, hold on to everything, because you're probably wondering, wait, what, King of Jerusalem? Like, the, the Fifth Crusade was over there failing to take back Jerusalem from the Muslims. Why is there a king of Jerusalem? Well, okay, yes. Yeah, so the kingdom of Jerusalem may not exist at this time, but this guy, John, still has the title, so good for him. And also, let's not, crusade, for, let's not forget, the Fifth Crusade is still technically going on at this point, even if it hasn't been terribly successful. So this king of Jerusalem is elected as senior co-ruler for life, along with this young uh, emperor. Now, when the emperor turns 20, the rules of this agreement say that he will become the sole ruler of the empire's lands in Asia, which, if you remember at this point, is not much. Uh So he'll only become the sole ruler upon John's death. So this is pretty weird uh, as far as these kinds of regencies go. Usually, you know, the regent's going to take care of things until the young emperor grows up. But in this case, it's like, no, the regent gets to be more or less co-emperor for life, no matter, unless he dies. And even if he dies, his two sons are supposed to inherit Macedonia and Epirus. Even though, okay, the Latin Empire doesn't control this territory, but, you know, in theory, his sons get to inherit all this territory. So, I mean, really, looking at a lot of Byzantine history, this is a very strange... Kind of agreement, but I guess the Latin Empire was really desperate. They needed a strong ruler, and maybe uh, I don't know. Maybe this guy John, the King of Jerusalem, was in a position to really demand certain terms, saying, "Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be an emperor of your dying, sad little empire here, surrounded by enemies. If you give me this sweet deal, where I get to really be co-emperor." But uh, you know, you can guess it's maybe a good thing for the Latin Empire because they need someone to grab the reins of power. So. This means this guy John is going to be able to rule virtually unopposed, at least for the next nine years. Uh, it was almost like a willing coup of the dynasty. Dynasty, but yeah. So getting back to to everything at this point, John probably could have thrown himself into. Sh- you would expect John to throw himself into shoring up the defenses of the Latin Empire, preparing for preparing it to kind of be ready for any kinds of uh, sieges, onslaughts to protect Constantinople. You'd think that's what John would do upon becoming co-emperor. But, well, that's not what happened. See, okay, in order to understand what's happening here with the king of Jerusalem, we need to go back in a way and get back to the Fifth Crusade that I set set aside a little while back. So, let's catch up on that. So, in short, the Fifth Crusade was at this point, as one historian put it, a colossal and irredeemable failure. End quote. Following this complete failure, all the way back in 1222, John had been working with the Pope with a plan for a new crusade, a sixth crusade. So this is John, the king of Jerusalem. Though so this time, John, you know, he would remain king of, king of, of Jerusalem, but whatever was conquered in the campaign uh, would go to the kingdom. But the attack itself was going to be led by the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II. John was not going to lead the attack for some reason. So... They gather these forces and the crusaders run off to the Holy Land while King John goes off to Spain to do some pilgrimaging and marry the daughter of one of the rulers of Leon, Leon, uh, this kingdom in Spain. So really weird, right? Crusaders go off to reconquer his kingdom and he goes in the opposite direction to go chill in Spain and uh, yeah, (laughs) go visit Santiago de Compostela and get married. Now, this is a problem for many people, for political reasons, much too complicated to get into, but this marriage, people are not happy with it. Uh, Essentially, Frederick II succeeds in retaking Jerusalem, but he claims himself as the king of Jerusalem, uh, because, you know, what the heck is John doing? He's not even here. This leads to uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, getting excommunicated, and it starts a war in Italy between the Papal States and the Holy Roman Empire. So yeah, everything's a mess. Crusades lead to complete messes and disasters every time. We've certainly learned that that is the case. So John then leaves... uh, So yeah, getting back to John becomes emperor, he leaves Constantinople around this time uh, to go help the pope in the war in Italy against the Holy Roman Empire. Again, super weird. Like... Constantinople kind of needs you but uh, you know I guess he was a really good catholic and felt like he had to go help out the pope against this excommunicated holy roman emperor so that war finishes within 2 years and a treaty in 1230 brings peace and removes the excommunication of Frederick II and has John give up his title of kingdom of uh, king of Jerusalem to Frederick so now John he's no longer king of Jerusalem he's just more or less emperor in Constantinople and but Now, at this point, you'd assume, okay, he resolved all the war, the Pope is okay, everyone's happy in Italy, he must go back to Constantinople, right? Wrong. He goes to France. Now John runs off to France. Why? Well, he needs some soldiers. Remember uh, when, when his successor asked for help from the Pope because Constantinople's seriously threatened, the Pope says, eh, no. So John realizes he needs to gather some soldiers, he needs some kind of help. So he goes to France to gather some knights, and whoever wants to come save the Latin Empire. So, you know, it's kind of weird, again, you'd think he would go back home to Constantinople, but you also can't deny that the Latin Empire really could use the help. So, in the meantime, while John is gathering soldiers in France, the Empire of Thessalonica is preparing to make an all-out assault on Constantinople. However... There's one thing that lays in the way, and that's Ivan Asen and the Second Bulgarian Empire, because the Bulgarians, although they are allies of the Empire of Thessalonica, are also on friendly terms with the Latins. Remember I said Ivan Asen II and his alliances are just all over the place? Well, essentially, the emperor of Thessalonica, Theodor Komnenos, he knew very well that if he went off and laid siege to Constantinople, the Bulgarians could come behind his forces and kind of crush them between the walls and their own spears and swords and such. So this was just way too dangerous, right? You couldn't assault Constantinople while leaving your rear open to a major attack. So instead of heading for the queen of cities to prepare a siege, instead the emperor heads north at the head of a massive army including his whole royal family and retinue to attack Bulgaria. So the alliance between the Empire of Thessalonica and the Second Bulgarian Empire is over. They are now at war. So this lumbering army, it takes its time moving north. But when Ivan Asen gets word about this sudden invasion and betrayal, So remember, you know, at this point, the the guy in Thessalonica is invading a family member. You know, they're they're related by uh, by marriage at this point. So Ivan Asen throws together an army and he rushes south as quickly as possible to meet the invaders. And the Bulgarians felt righteous. I mean, one story says that Ivana Sen II used, a recent, used that recently broken treaty from the marriage as sort of a flag. Other people say he had it on a spear or something, but clearly the Bulgarians felt that they were morally right. You know, they were being invaded by former allies, that this is wrong, and so that uh, they had God and justice and all that good stuff on their side. But much more than that, and more importantly in this case, they also had the element of surprise. The Bulgarians had moved south much faster than the Thessalonians expected. And as a result, when they met near the modern city of Khaskovo in southwest, or yeah, southeastern Bulgaria, rather, the Bulgarians managed to surround the Thessalonican army and wipe out basically the entire army. There's a map of the battle you can find on the website. Though we don't have a lot of details, we just know, you know, surrounded, army was Almost completely destroyed. Only the emperor's brother Manuel, who is the guy who is actually married to Ivana Sen's uh, daughter, so only Ivana Sen's son-in-law manages to escape. But besides Manuel and a few soldiers, the royal family captured. Soldiers captured or dead. The whole army's gone. So this is an incredibly dramatic turn of fortune. Remember, you know, the king of, Thess- of Thessalonica, the empire of Thessalonica rather, you know, it just conquered this kingdom of Thessalonica. It was, except for the Bulgarians, basically ready to try to take Constantinople. You know, they'd taken all this territory. Things are going awesome for them. And now, all of a sudden, the biggest army they could put together is gone. Just like that. So, you know, it, it looks possible that, you know, the the this empire could have taken Constantinople. Um, but, too bad. Now, this emperor Theodor Komnenos... Is in chains. He's disgraced by the Bulgarians, and he would later be blinded and spend the last seven miserable years of his life in prison. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. In fact, an inscription on a church in Velikotornovil, near Banjas Tornovil, uh, was put there by Ivan the II to commemorate this victory, and it says the following quote, In the year of the world 6738, i.e., 1233, third indiction, John Asen, in God Christ, true Tsar and sovereign of the Bulgarians, son of the old Tsar Asen, raised from the foundations and decorated with art this holy church in the name of the Holy Forty Martyrs, with the help of whom, in the twelfth year of my reign, when this temple was being decorated, I made war in Byzantium, and defeated the Greek army, and captured their Tsar, Kiril Theodor Komnenos, together with all his boyars. And I occupied all of his land, from Odrin, Adrianople, to Drach, Durachium, Greek, and also Albanian and Serbian, and the towns around Constantinople, and this very town were ruled by the Friezes, the Latins. But they also subjugated to my empire, because they had no other Tsar but me, and thanks to me they spent their days, because God ordered this, because without him neither a deed nor a word is done. Glory to him forever." Amen. End quote. So, as this description, inscription rather, indicates, following this victory, Ivan Asen quickly rushes through the territories of the Empire of Thessalonica and conquers everything all the way to the Adriatic. So, within months, the Empire of Thessalonica has just collapsed, nearly all of its territory has been conquered, and yeah, it's over, with the exception of some territory, because that Brother, the son in law of Anasen Manuel, who escaped the battle, well, he managed to get back to Thessalonica where he still reigned, and knowing there was no hope of resistance really, he decided to pledge himself as a Bulgarian vassal. So, you know, he was married into the Bulgarian family, why not? So, The kingdom of Thessalonica kind, or the empire, I keep saying kingdom, still kind of exists. It's just a little vassal state down there. Uh, Bulgaria conquers a lot of territory very quickly. And, well, the one part of that inscription that's not quite accurate, the Latin Empire is not a subject of the Bulgarians. Uh, It's kind of estimated by historians this was more aspirational. This is what Ivana Sen thought was going to happen, and it just didn't work out that way. So, all of this happened in 1230. But by 1231, John had finally returned to Constantinople to be sort of officially crowned emperor there after all these years. This event, along with Ivan sudden position as master of the Balkans, soured relations between the two empires. So, you know, for a while there, Bulgaria and the Latin Empire were on good terms, but you know the fact that ivana didn't have any more challengers in the balkans except for the latin empire and the fact that its emperor returned suddenly they weren't looking so friendly so but ivana couldn't have been that worried i mean the latin empire again they only really control constantinople and the lands around it and having married the daughter of the king of hungary there was no reason for ivana II the second to be worried about uh, hungarians attacking them and serbia was pretty quiet so it would seem like Ivanus II is now in a position to throw his full weight at the crumbling Latin Empire to really try to finally fulfill that ancient Bulgarian dream of conquering Constantinople. Now, to aid in this, he quickly makes an alliance with the Empire of Nicaea, who are also looking to crush the Latin Empire. But John was indecisive in Constantinople. Now, the new emperor... Essentially, the Venetians really wanted him to attack the Empire of Nicaea, in part because um, the, the Empire of Nicaea was sort of attacking the Venetians in Crete, and they wanted the Latin Empire to sort of back them up. But John declined. He decided not to attack Nicaea. And as a result, many of those French knights that he had spent all that time recruiting decided to go home because they had come for a war and not to sit in Constantinople and twiddle their thumbs. Luckily for him, luckily for the emperor though, Ivana Sen was quickly distracted by a surprise invasion by Hungary in 1232. Now, apparently that marriage to the daughter of Andrew II wasn't paying off as much as Ivana Sen II had hoped. Though if though, you know, kidnapping more or less uh King Andrew II probably didn't help. Uh, but still, more than this. This invasion was actually more in response to Ivan shift from being allied with the Latins to being an ally of Nicaea. Because remember, the, the Hungarians were super loyal Catholics, and so once Bulgaria moved away from the Catholic Latin Empire and towards the Greeks, the Pope ordered the Hungarians to invade and punish the Bulgarians for turning against the Latin Empire. The Hungarians quickly retook cities like Belgrade, ones which had been given as a dowry of Ivan wife, but their offensive ground to a halt with an unsuccessful siege of Vidin. Though the Hungarians did manage to annex a bit of territory uh, up in modern uh, Romania, known as the Banat of Severin, in a subsequent invasion the next year. So their invasion ground down in 1232. They tried again in 1233. And then they, yeah, they took some territory, but you know it wasn't a stellar success. Uh, they they did all right, but you know it, it was more of a slap on the wrist for Bulgaria. The next year, 1234, saw Ivan solidify his position by supporting a coup in Serbia, which saw his son-in-law take the throne there, replacing his, that man's brother. Now, who was this? Yeah, the man's brother who was overthrown was the son-in-law of the former emperor of Thessalonica, who was in Ivan dungeon. So, yeah, all you need to know here is now Serbia is an ally of Bulgaria uh, in the family and everything. Now that the situation in Hungary has been resolved, Serbia has gone from being like neutral to maybe a little hostile to being an ally, again, it looks like Ivanysen II is free to look west, to take Constantinople to, to mount a full assault. It's now 1235. And to further solidify the alliance between the bu- empires of Bulgaria and Nicaea, Ivanesen's daughter and the son of Emperor John III, Dukas Vatatzes, in Nicaea, are married so that same year, the two empires campaigned together against the Latins. So it's all coming together, right? Ivana Sen has resolved things to the Hungarians. He's gotten the Serbs to be his allies. He's made the Nicene's even better allies with a the, with the marriage, a very close marriage. And now they're attacking the Latin Empire. And those empires' remaining lands are more or less all conquered. And the two allies together lay siege to Constantinople. However, a navy friendly to the Latin Empire breaks their blockade and relieves the city, and as a result, eventually they have to give up on the siege. So when winter approaches, they call off the siege, but they plan to resume it later in the year, because, I mean, why not? The, The city seems ready to fall. But when that time comes, Ivanus II changed his mind. See, Emperor John of Brienne died in Constantinople. And suddenly, Ivana Sen saw another opportunity to maybe become regent and effectively conquer the Latin Empire without bloodshed. Because remember, you know when John of Brienne became uh, the, the emperor in Constantinople, you know there was already the young emperor, but uh, they gave him a regency that basically made him emperor. And so, Ivana Sen could dream of the same thing for himself. Why not? And so, as a result of this opportunity, he quickly switched his allegiance to the Latins, and help them lay siege against the Nica- a nicene controlled city in Thrace. So like he had just kind of solidified his uh, alliance with the Nicene and campaigned with them, but suddenly he has an opportunity, not even like a deal, but just, uh, you know, it seems like it could happen, and he switches sides. And while all this is going on, terrible news comes from Tornaval. Plague ravages the city and takes the life of, of Ivanesen Sen II's Hungarian wife, and his son Peter, as well as the patriarch of the church. Ivana Sen decides that this is a sign from God, indicating displeasure with his actions, and so he quickly returns to Ternival. And around this time, a two-year truce is signed between the Niceans and the Latin Empire. So... You know every, everything seemed like it was just so close like they were gonna take constantinople it was all gonna happen and then just like that it all completely falls apart a peace treaty is signed and latin empire is saved but what does ivana sen do back in tornaval well he grieves his wife and son but he also falls in love with a woman named irene now she was actually the daughter of the emperor of thessalonica who ivana sen had imprisoned and blinded you see Irene had been captured at that same battle where her father was captured, and she grew up in the palace in Turnival. There, she was renowned for her beauty, and it seems like Ivanassin II fell very passionately in love with her following the death of his maybe second wife. Now, this marriage presented a problem. Not because Irene was marrying the man who had destroyed her father's empire and imprisoned her father and blinded her father. That didn't seem to be a big deal. Or maybe it was, and you know she just went along to get along. But the problem with this marriage was the fact that Ivana Sen's daughter had been married to Irene's uncle, Manuel. Therefore, the marriage would make Manuel both his own great-uncle-in-law Sorry, not Manuel, but, um, no, so it make Ivanus II the second the second's own great uncle in law. So awkward family drama. Now this was technically against the teachings of the Bulgarian church, but eh, nobody seemed to bat an eye and they got married anyways that same year in 1237. So yeah, more weirdness with Ivanus family and marriages and dynasty. It's, it's all over the place. Now at this point, Ivan阿森 decides to stay out of the ongoing wars between Latin and Nicene empires. Um, you know, they signed a the peace treaty, but things are still not great with them. He could easily join in, but he says, eh, "It's okay, I'll, I'll stay on the sidelines." And to be frank, I find this incredibly confusing. Now. You've heard me say it again and again, but conquering Constantinople has been the greatest conceivable thing a Bulgarian Tsar could do for centuries. And in this moment, Ivan II seems to have that goal very much within his power. And yet, he seems not just like he doesn't want to try it, but just sort of indifferent to the whole thing. You know, he can't even decide whether he wants to be a firm ally of the Latins or the Niceneans. Does he want to save Constantinople or does he want to conquer it? He seems to want to do neither which is really weird in Bulgarian history. And so, as a result of this, over the next few years, we don't really have any much details about what Ivan Asen's doing. Now, he seems to reconquer that territory Hungary had conquered a few years before, but still, he largely stays out of events around Constantinople. He hangs out at home. Now, true, he does eventually resume his alliance with Nicaea. God knows why they allow this, but sure, why not? But then he switches sides... Again in 1240, and allows some Cumans and around 60,000 Western soldiers to cross his lands in order to reinforce the Latin Empire and save it from destruction at the hands of the Nicaeans. So, this means in around a decade, Ivanus II switches sides between the sort of Greek and Latin forces five times. Five times in a decade. That is really impressive, even by you know crazy medieval politics standards. Now Historians have debated the reasons for Ivan Asen II's indecisiveness, but no one can seem to really come up with a great reason. Um, you know, but ultimately, whatever his reasons were, at this point, there are more dangerous forces in the area. More dangerous than the Latins or the Greeks, because out of that distant step which seems to go on forever, that step that you'll remember has been quiet for a very long time in Bulgarian history, comes something very dangerous. Because all the way back in 1227, years before this, thousands of kilometers away, a man died. A man named Genghis Khan, leaving his sons the largest land empire the world has ever seen. Ultimately, the Western Mongol territories end up in the hands of Batu, a grandson of the great Khan. Now Batu conquers Volga Bulgaria in 1236, Again, at some point when I've got some time, I'm going to make a whole history series about them. And before progressing into the lands that are now Ukraine and pressing the Cumans who lived in that territory farther west. So this is a repeat of, remember, we've seen this many times in Bulgarian history, right? New steppe people come and they push the old steppe people into Europe. And it just, sits this rolling catastrophe, causing invasions and people migrations and all kinds of messes. Now, quick point here. When the Mongols conquered Crimea, a portion of the Cumans there actually fled into the mountains of Crimea. And over the centuries, they gradually mixed with the other peoples of the peninsula, gradually forming what we now call the Crimean Tatars. They're a very fascinating people. I've been to Crimea met with a lot of Tatars. I have Tatar pottery in my home right now. Uh, delicious food, fascinating people group. I, I highly recommend checking out their uh, really amazing and tragic history. But Just as a point, this is the moment when the Tatars are formed as a people, and they will eventually play a role in Bulgarian history, but that's a way down the road. Anyways, the Mongols go further, and they subjugate the Kievan Rus, which also begins a very important period in history, this intermediary period between the Kievan Rus and the eventual emergence of a state that we call Russia. So... The Kievan Rus is gone, now totally conquered by the Mongols, but you know this is set in motion, the gears that will eventually produce Russia. But those Mongols they move farther into Europe. They attack Poland, they attack Hungary, they even lay siege to Vienna before the death of the Great Khan back in Mongolia, forces them to turn back home. Now when they're retreating, when those Mongols are leaving from the siege of Vienna, Ivanisen is said to have won a victory over some portion of their forces, just, you know, a column in 1241, so after all the stuff we talked about with Ivan earlier. However, the next year, an invasion uh, of Mongols succeeds in destroying Pest, half of the modern city of Budapest, and that invasion doesn't seem to have entered Bulgaria, but it was threatening enough to force Bulgaria to pay tribute to this Mongol state known as the Golden Horde. So, it's kind of an interesting thing, right? So Ivanus II seems ascendant. He's like conquered the whole Balkans. He's ready to take Constantinople. And now all of a sudden he's paying tribute to the Mongols and doesn't conquer Constantinople. It's it's sort of, uh, the I don't know, the duality of Ivanus II. He's this, this great Tsarist, great conqueror. But then in the end, it, he just sort of throws it all away. It just doesn't seem to go anywhere. Now, in between these invasions, in between these Mongol invasions, Ivanesen II finally dies. Now, at this point, he had been Tsar for 23 years after taking control of the state from Bordel. Now, during that time, Bulgaria, as I just mentioned, it had expanded to one of its greatest territorial extents. It had come within a hair of taking Constantinople. But no, it didn't happen. And Ivan Sen proved what Bordil had proved that the strength of a ruler made all the difference in the world at this time. However, his weakening policies in his later years led him to stay out of everything and give tribute. And frankly, at this point, raises questions about what will befall his son and heir, Kaliman. The boy is only seven years old when his father dies. He's the son of Ivan the Second and Maria of Hungary. So he has an impressive pedigree He's the son of a king and an emperor, or sorry, the grandson of a a king and the son of an emperor. But he's a young kid, and that's, you know, it was a question whether or not his pedigree is going to be enough to get him through these troubled times. And we'll have to find out what happens to him next time. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey, and the theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Like us on Facebook, leave us a review on iTunes, just check us out everywhere, Uh, get in touch if you're interested in helping out for improving the website. If you have ideas about improving the website, if you'd like to help out creating a Bulgarian language version of the podcast, just feel free to get in touch. And in the meantime, успех, or in English, good luck.